everybody. Good to see you online. Good to see you. How many, uh, who wants to guess Joel's personality? What do you think it is? Yep, otter, squirrel, squirrel, squirrel. Yeah, I, I kind of feel like I've been paper shamed too because, you know, I love paper. I, like I'm not an app guy, so I guess I'm not a cool guy. Now I'm, I'm, I'm just the paper guy. How many were there? Where's my new friends? Oh, there's lots, lots of paper people. All right, well, good. Well, yeah, we're friends. Well, of all, of all the things that we're talking about in this series, and this series is called The Good Stuff, right? We're talking about what Jesus left the church and all the good things that God has done for us. Um, of all the things that God has done for us and left us with, I believe that what we're talking about today, for me, is one of the most important and one of the best things. And that is this thing called grace. Does anybody love grace? Let me see. Grace is so amazing. And, and what grace really is is that God does not give us what we deserve, but he chooses to love us, to accept us, to forgive us, and to bring us into relationship with himself, even though we didn't deserve it, even though we were far from God. And, and I have to tell you, I value grace so much. I mean, when I get up in the morning, I make sure that I am bathed in grace because I know I'm going to need grace throughout the day. I know that I'm going to run into situations where I'm going to be impatient and frustrated, and I know I'm going to need God's grace over my life. Yes, I do still struggle with those things. So there is grace. Speaking of grace, my wife and I are, are finishing up building a house. Anybody ever done that with a spouse? Lots of grace required. Um, and so we both agree this has been the most challenging build of our lives. We've been married 37 years, and we've built, uh, this is our third build from scratch, remodeled several other houses. And I've come to the conclusion this one's the most difficult because we just don't care anymore about what we say or how we say it. You know, we just say it, especially Gwen. She, she just says it, right? And so uh, extra grace required in our marriage and in our life as we build this house together. But we're finding that that's true. God makes up the difference in our lives. In those areas where we don't quite connect or those areas that we don't quite appreciate the other as much as we could and should. In those areas that, that where we fail each other from time to time. That's where grace comes in. And it's a wonderful thing to have grace in your life and grace in your marriage. We need grace. So I was thinking this week about a new pre-marriage program for the church. I was thinking about what if every couple that comes in and says, we want to get married, what if we give them a budget and we say, you've got to build a house together. You've got to pick out the colors. You've got to pick out the furniture. You've got to do the work together. And if you make it, we will marry you. How about that? I think it's a great idea. I don't know. Probably cut down on our marriages. So... Uh, I was talking about grace to a couple of guys last week. A couple of friends of mine. I've known these guys for a while. And one of these is a friend of mine who sort of went off the deep end a couple of years ago and had an affair and um, really threw his marriage and his life into disarray, just about lost hit. And thankfully, he has a wife who loves grace, and he has a wife who extended grace, which was a beautiful thing. And it wasn't easy. It took a long time to restore the relationship, but she gave him a chance to repent and to make things right, and he did. And so he was sharing with me and, and with his other friend, uh, he was just talking about grace and how important grace was in his darkest times. Because you see, what he needed from his friend and from me was not more shame. It's not what he needed. He didn't need more shame. He didn't need more guilt. He had plenty of that. 
But what he needed from us was he needed grace. He needed to know that he was still loved, even though he had really failed in some areas of his life. And for me, that felt like kind of a second nature to extend that grace, because you see, I was extended that grace about 30 years ago when I was unfaithful in my marriage. I was extended that grace. And there were people who came around me. There were people who loved me. It was tough love, but they loved me. Uh, There were people that continued to invest in me and in our friendship and and with my wife as well. And I'm just here to tell you this morning that without grace, I would not be standing here. I would not be here doing what I do. And God is such a gracious God. And it it brought about the question this week as I was thinking about grace and as, as I was studying grace. It brought about the question, how bad do you have to be for grace to not extend to you? Can you ever be beyond grace? Can you ever be that bad? And the reason I think it's an important question is because I think that sometimes we feel that we're beyond God's grace. I think that sometimes we feel that that, that what we did, that our sin or our failure or maybe just how we view ourselves is beyond God's grace or God's help. And so I want to have that conversation today because maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you're listening online and you're thinking, yeah, what I've done is beyond God's grace. So today I want to look at the life of a man and tell his story who really should have been beyond God's grace. If anybody in the Bible should have been beyond God's grace, it's this guy. And his name was Saul. So open up in your Bibles this morning to Acts chapter 9. And we want to talk about the story of a man who really could have been beyond God's grace. Starting in verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. Now, that's just a quick, easy introduction to Saul. So he went to the high priest in Jerusalem, and he requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus. That's like the temples in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way. The way was uh, what Paul or Saul called the early Christians. Uh, Anybody that he found there, he wanted to arrest. And he wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. Now, just starting out here, right, this story of Saul, if anyone was beyond God's good grace, it was probably Saul. I mean, he was an enemy of Christ. He was eager to kill the followers of Christ. You think you've done bad things? You think you've done things that God can't forgive you for? We're going to find out this morning that God's extend, God's grace extends far beyond what we might have thought. I don't think it gets much worse than arresting and murdering God's followers and then calling it righteous. And that's exactly what Saul did. But for me, it just proves God's ability to forgive. And I've tasted of that grace, and I can tell you it's good grace. Uh, it just tells us of God's ability to redeem or to buy back a life and to do good things with a life That's been wasted. So number one in your notes today, no one is beyond God's good grace. I truly believe that with all of my heart. I've been in this work a long time. I've heard some bad stories. I've been a part of some difficult situations. And for people who are willing to repent and willing to change, nobody is beyond God's good grace. You know, I was meeting with another couple this week, and they were just sharing with me. And and they've been married about 50 years. And they had had some rough patches. They had had some affairs in their past. 
Uh, but here they were, following Christ and put things back together again. And they were just sharing with me their regrets. And they were saying, you know, if we had to do it all over again, there's some things we wouldn't do, right? Or there's some things we would do differently. And so we were talking about that, and I agree with them 100%. There's some things I wouldn't do. There's some things I would do differently. There are some regrets that I have. And at the same time, it's those very places in my life that I have failed, that I have fallen, and been met with God's grace, and not only from Him, but also from His people, that has woven in my life a depth of relationship with Christ and love for His church that I would never have had if I had not needed grace the way that I needed it. Now, we all need grace. But you do have those times in your life where you feel like you need grace more than usual, right? And I have had those times in my life, and maybe you have as well. And I'm sure that Saul felt that way. I'm sure that Saul felt that way. You know, when when it turns out that he meets Jesus, I'm sure that Saul had regrets with the face of Stephen. Remember we talked about Stephen last week and, and Saul was standing there giving his approval as they stoned Stephen to death? I'm sure that in Saul's future, as he becomes Paul, he's going to see the face of Stephen coming across his mind and the many others that he had thrown in prison and perhaps even contributed to their death. And that's why Saul, who becomes Paul, could write later, your grace is sufficient for me, for it's in my weakness that your power is made perfect. Little wonder that he could pen those words so many years later. So here's what I believe about you and about me. I believe that every person in this room today, every person watching online has a past And for some of us, it's our present, uh, where we're deeply in need of grace, where there is sin, where there's harmful choices, where there's regrets. Uh, I do too. I have a past like that. And here's what I want to say. I want to say that one sin is not harder for God to forgive than another. I know that we have sin scales, and we tend to judge people by the kind of sin that they've committed. It's not right. But God doesn't. And it's no harder for him to forgive any sin than another sin. And each of us have needed God's grace and need God's grace. It's the one thing in the room that unifies us and equifies us. That we each have a deep and desperate need for God's grace. I don't care if you haven't been out murdering Christians. Well, I do care. But I mean, I, that doesn't change the fact that you need grace every bit as much as I do or Saul did. And we're unified around that confession this morning. That's why we're here. We're here because of the desperate need we have for grace. We can't do it on our own. So we need grace every day. If you're like me, you struggle. You're selfish. I can be really selfish sometimes. I can be uh, harsh I can be impatient, just ask my wife through this house build. You have those days where you're like, that one thing, kind of, you know, that's the the straw that breaks the camel's back, and you become impatient. And we don't always love well. Do you always love well? I don't always love well. I many times give in to my own selfish desires or wants or needs. And so I found that the truth about my life is this, that I need grace, and I need to walk in grace. 
And that that's the key to a victorious Christian life. It's not whether or not you can live perfectly. It doesn't say that God expects us to be perfect. What the word says is that God wants us to receive his grace. His mercy is new every morning, and God wants us to rely on it. And if you don't, you'll live in shame and guilt. So back to Saul, verse 3. As Saul was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. And he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now that must have been a lights-on moment for Saul. Now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. So let's just rehearse what happens here. Saul is on the way to Damascus to arrest Christians. He's midstream in a murderous, evil trip that's going to take him to a place where he is going to rip believers away from their families and away from their churches and away from their friends. And he's going to take them to Jerusalem where they're going to stand trial and on mocked up charges and hopefully they're going to be put to death. That's the goal of Saul. And so I just want to pause and bring it to us. Has anybody ever been on a sin road before? Let me see. If you're like me, a sin road, a place where you know that you're doing the wrong things. Uh, maybe it's now. Maybe it's, just, maybe it's your present. Or maybe it was in the past where you were on a sin road. And you get involved with sinning and you sort of hit cruise control. And that kind of becomes your speed And that's where you're at on the road. And here's what you need. And here's what I need when I've hit the cruise control of sin. I need to be arrested by grace. I need to be stopped by grace. Now, I want you to notice another thing in this passage we just read. And that is that Jesus makes sin very, very personal. Uh, Did you see what he said to Saul? And we need to see this. Jesus makes it clear that in persecuting the church, Saul is persecuting him. And I think it's a great view that we need to develop on sin because we are the body of Christ, right? We are the church. Christ is in us, right? So we are his church. We are his body. And so when we sin against one another, and I think this could be great motivation for us to sin less. When we sin against one another, really we're sinning against Christ. Uh, Like he said to Saul, Saul, you're persecuting me when you persecute the church. And, and oddly enough, Saul hadn't, you know, hadn't thought of that. And so when someone sins against us, they're sinning against Christ in us as well. And another thing that does for us is that should make us feel a little bit better when someone is sinning against us because we know Jesus is with us. And he's also a part of this transgression that's against us. And, and where Jesus is in it with us, he is for us. Right? So Jesus... When he's a part of our life, then he takes on also the weight of sin as people sin against us. And that's a great place to be with Jesus. Because Christ is in me, he is in it with me. Let's read on in in Saul's story here. Verse 7. The men with Saul stood speechless, for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but they saw no one. And Saul picked himself up off the ground. But when he had opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. And he remained there blind for three days and did not eat 
or drink. Now, I want you to think about this. Saul is steamrolling with warrants in his hand to Damascus, about 18 different synagogues in Damascus, and he's going to visit everyone. He's going to rip people away from their synagogues and from their families. He is going full steam ahead. Now, get the contrast after he meets Jesus. After he meets Jesus, he's going to be led by the hand into the city to receive healing from somebody that he was probably going to arrest. It's a powerful, powerful story of grace. And so he remained there blind for three days, did not eat or drink. Now, let's talk about Saul's blindness for a second. Some would say that it was unkind of God, even cruel of God, to strike somebody blind. I mean, what kind of a God does that? That he would strike somebody blind. But the truth is, Saul was on a destructive path, harmful to himself and harmful to others. And here's what God wanted. And I want us to get this. God wanted Saul's heart. God wanted Saul's heart. God wanted Saul to come to him and to be one of his own. And so God was willing to inflict blindness upon Saul so that this could happen. And I think that that is a principle that we need to learn about God. Now, now I don't think God has to go around striking people blind these days to get their attention. I think that we do enough damage ourselves, and I think the world does enough damage to us that we come to the place where we realize we need God. We we become, you know, desperate for Him. But in Saul's case, that's what he did. He struck him blind. He wanted to interrupt Saul's direction. Leads us to number two. Our blindness is God's kindness. I don't know if you've thought about it that way before. That when you reach a place in life that is confusing or dark or disappointing or you have difficult things happen to you, again, I I don't believe God has to inflict pain. I think that we struggle with life ourselves. Or maybe you've sort of strayed from your first love, you know. Maybe you know Jesus, but you've kind of strayed away from him. I had a time in my life where that happened. I've told you this story before playing ball at Western my freshman year and, and then injured my going into my sophomore year, had to sit out a year. And, and then, you know, I really felt resentful toward God. I really felt like, God, you could have kept this from happening. I really was kind of angry with God. And God led me through a process that that very disappointment in life led me to a group of students at Skagit Valley College where I went to play my second year, which was in my third year. And God led me to this group of students who welcomed me in and became the expression of grace that I needed at that time of my life. And if none of that had happened, I would not be where I am today. And so God takes these situations in our life and he uses them, A, for his glory, to bring us to himself, but also to bring us to places in life that God wants us to be. You know, we have to learn the lesson of blindness sometimes. To make us desperate for God. Here's the thing. God allows blindness in our life to bring us to frustration and desperation. Is that the goal of anybody here? Anybody want to be frustrated and desperate? No, we don't want to. Like Steve preached last week. What a great message talking about how we we all are committed to our own comfort. That's what we want. We want to be comfortable. But God is committed to frustrating us so that we'll come to a place of desperation in our life. And we will realize our need for him. Because he knows that's what's best for us. 
And for many of us, we're such hard learners that we just won't get there without going through a little bit of pain, right? And here's the cool thing about this, is that God uses us as believers, as followers of Christ. God uses us like he used me in my friend's life just a couple of years ago. God uses us to be the ones that extend grace to people that are desperate for grace. Like God doesn't just do that himself, but God uses us to be extenders of grace to them. Let's read on. Verse 10. We're going to find out the unsung hero of this story. Now there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord spoke to him in a vision, calling Ananias. Yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, go over to Straight Street. I guess there was only one, Straight Street in Damascus. Go to the house of Judas. And when you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He's praying to me right now. I have shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so that he can see again. I love this story. I got to tell you, God's doing all this stuff with Saul over here, right? Striking him blind, you know, telling him what's up. But at the same time, he's preparing Ananias, who's a believer, a believing Jew. He had been a devout Jew. Now he's a follower of Jesus Christ. He's preparing Ananias to be the healer of the very man that was coming, presumably, with a letter in hand to rip Ananias away from his church and away from his family. And I don't know if you knew this, but Ananias' name means the Lord is gracious. That's what his name means. Now, who but God could set that up? And you see what God is doing here? He's setting up Saul. He's setting up Saul, the persecutor of the church, to be healed by his grace through a Christian Jew that Saul was probably coming to arrest. And now Saul was going to experience the grace of God through the hands of a Christian. Unbelievable story. And you think about what had to happen to Ananias in order to say yes to this, right? But Ananias also struggled with this. And that leads us to number three in our notes this morning, that God's good grace is expressed best through forgiven followers. Forgiven followers. I'm a forgiven follower. How about you? Forgiven follower. We've been forgiven. We understand grace. And God loves to express his grace through we who have lived through some of the very things that that the people that need God's grace are going through. And God loves to do that. What's your story? We often say here, what's your story? Let God use it. Tell your story that someone else can experience grace. So let's think about Ananias for a moment. Ananias had been forgiven too. Ananias had been a devout Jew. And so he had been forgiven of the sin of unbelief. He didn't always believe in the Messiah. He didn't always believe in Jesus. There was a day that he gave his heart to Christ, like all of the other unbelieving Jews had. And he was a believer now because of God's grace. He was a forgiven follower. So really, when you think about it, not much separated from him from Saul, except, of course, Saul's persecution of the church. They both came from the same place. So when God asks Ananias to do this, how could Ananias say no? And I get that. How, how can I not extend grace? To somebody when I've experienced the very grace that someone needs. 
And it doesn't matter what the sin is. It doesn't matter what the condition is. The fact of the matter is this. I've experienced grace. Someone needs to experience grace. Who am I to withhold that grace from someone who needs it? So here's what I believe. I believe that God wants to use us, everybody in the room, to express His good grace, to bring sinners to Himself. And His grace is so good, and not just for uh, salvation and restoration, but it's so good for everybody who needs grace, people in the church who fall and fail, people who let us down, people who disappoint us, or maybe we're the ones doing the disappointing. We all need grace, but we're afraid We're afraid to extend it, and we're afraid to identify with people who need it. Let me talk about why that is. Like Ananias, we're afraid. Verse 13, but Lord, isn't there always a but Lord when God asks you to do something? Isn't there always a but Lord when you feel like you need to go to somebody and extend grace? Isn't there always a but Lord when you feel like, man, I don't really like what that person does or who they are, but I feel like I, you know what I mean? There's always a but Lord. And there was one for Ananias. But Lord, exclaimed Ananias, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem. And he's right. He's right. People are talking. And he's authorized by the leading priest to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. But Lord, I've heard people talk. But Lord, do you know what that person does? But Lord, do you know what they believe or who they are? People talk. And this is what keeps us from extending grace to people who desperately need the grace of Jesus. It's because we're afraid we're going to be identified with them. That was Ananias' fear, that he would be identified with Saul, and that possibly somehow Saul was just trying to infiltrate the church to identify believers. But what gets in the way of grace today? I can tell you what it is. It's people are talking. It's gossip. It's judgment that gets in the way of grace. And I struggle with the same things you do. We're afraid of what people might think if we express God's grace to certain kinds of souls. We're afraid. We need to get over it. Because Jesus did. So we need to remember. Here's what I need to remember. I was a Saul. I needed grace. And I truly believe that it's remembering our own forgiven sin, our own forgiven condition, that gives us grace and helps us to have courage to express grace to people that desperately need it. Here here it is in a nutshell. God wants you and me, to become healed healers. Where we can take our story, and we're not afraid, who knows, what we did, because God wants to use it in the life of somebody. Great freedom comes to our lives when we can talk about our story, even though it was shameful. If somebody needs to know, and it's the right condition, and they they need what you have to offer then it's the right thing for you to share your story with them. Be a healed healer. Let God use you to touch the souls of the world. They desperately need you. God has a plan for their life. Verse 15, the Lord said, Go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles 
and to kings as well as to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Here's, here's what I want to say as I wrap up this morning, that this story that really is a great story. It's been told over and over and over again about Saul. And it is. It's a story about Saul. This man would go on to plant the Gentile church. He would go to the Gentiles. He would write more than half the New Testament. This is a giant in our faith, Paul, right? But it's also about a man named Ananias, a man that you will never hear about again in the Bible except one time when Paul mentions him, just once. And here's a man who was challenged by another person's condition. He was challenged by Saul's reputation and about his sin, and rightly so. The guy was a murderer. But Ananias, the Lord, is gracious. Ananias is able to push past the fear and to go and be the healed healer for Saul. It would change the course of history for the church and for Saul. Verse 17, so Ananias went and found Saul. He laid his hands on him and he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road, has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. Afterward, he ate some food and regained his strength. And Saul stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days. Just a couple of observations. One is, Jews never laid their hands on one another unless they were willing to identify with that person. And Ananias calls him brother, Saul. They were both Jewish. They were, you know, they, they had the same faith. Ananias lays his hands, and in doing so, he identifies in front of everybody who they don't know the end of the story. Remember, they've not read the story. Ananias goes in front of everybody, lays his hands on Saul, and says, the Lord Jesus has sent me. The other thing that's noteworthy is that Saul stayed with the believers. You know, these are the people that probably had lost some relatives or some friends, acquaintances anyway, to Saul. And now here they are extending hospitality to this man who they're not sure about yet. I mean, you'd be locking your room at night, wouldn't you? Hey, Saul's in the next room, you know, better lock up. There's something else that strikes me about this story, and I think it's noteworthy. I think we need to think about this. And that is that God sent Ananias, representing us, representing the church, to heal Saul before he was even saved. You know, if you view salvation as when the Holy Spirit comes and lives in you, and then you get baptized out of obedience, right? Well, Ananias went and proclaimed healing over Saul, and then uh, prayed for the filling of the Holy Spirit, and then Saul was baptized. So I think sometimes we get our order mixed up a little bit about how God may, may want to do things. I think it's good and challenging to our, our processes, our holy righteous processes that we put in place. And maybe God wants us to go and be really gracious to people who are outside the kingdom. Maybe God wants us to go and even be healing, be healed healers, even before those people have come into the kingdom. 
Maybe God wants us to reach out and touch people that are outside the kingdom. What do you think? I think he does. I think that's, that's the whole point. So that's remarkable. And I believe that God wants each of us to be an Ananias. The Lord is gracious to the Saul's of our lives. That's how they get a taste of his grace. Now this week as I was thinking about this message and, and working on things and thinking about grace in my own life, you know, I was raised on the hymns, and so I've always got songs coming into my head. And, and my wife always knows because she hears them <laughs> as I sing them over and over and hum them and whistle them. But this song, uh, Grace, Greater Than All My Sin, came to my mind. And so I asked Becky to come and, and play it. And I'm going to ask you to sing along as you want to this morning. Just stay seated. But what I want you to do is just meditate on the richness of God's grace. Whether you're here as an Ananias this morning, you've been healed, your story has been changed by God, or whether maybe you're here as a Saul and you're on a sin road, either way, the beauty of grace in our life is remarkable. So let's just remember as we sing this hymn together this morning. Thank you. 